All right, guys, it's Dan and Eric. It's great to see you guys. Thanks to you both for coming on the Biotech and Breweries podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So, Eric, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about, about your company and what you guys are working on. But before we do that, I uh, wanted to take some time to kind of give Dan the floor, learn a little bit about Mission Brewery. And uh, Dan, maybe would love to hear your, your interesting history and, and connection with the brewery beyond just being an employee. It goes deeper than that, I know, with you. And then we'd love to hear about the couple beers you picked out for us to try today. Okay, so Mission Brewery was started in 2007. And I'm the founder, and I was the president and CEO for 14 and a half years until last summer. Last July, I, uh, I had entered into a transaction and sold the brewery to one of our current shareholders. So beer for me began in college. I was renting a house from a guy and, and just a random asked him what he was going to do that weekend. And he said he was going to brew beer. So this was 31 years ago. And back then, not a lot of people were homebrewing. You know, right now you guys probably each know 10 people who make beer at home, right? But back then there weren't as many homebrew shops or quality ingredients that you can get today. And when he told me, I was intrigued. I said, uh, I said, that sounds radical. You know, I'd like to do that. And he said, get, get a kit, get the equipment and I'll, I'll help you with your first batch. And after that first batch, I was absolutely hooked. Just loved it. There was something about the hops, the malt, the yeast, you know, making it and drinking it with our, with my friends and whatnot. And so when I got out of college, you know, I got into finance and brewing had always been my passion. You know, we'd go on vacation and I'd read beer books and I, on weekends, I was always brewing. So as time went on, my brewing got better. You know, my garage started to look like a meth lab. I had so much equipment in it. I started to enter competition and, and, and began winning competitions. I started winning medals as a home brewer. So fast forward to about uh, 16 years ago, I decided to go through the beer certification program uh, that the Natural Association holds on to become a certified beer judge. And I successfully became certified. And that really changed me as a brewer. That, that took my knowledge of beer to the next level where I can taste a beer and tell you what happened in the manufacturing process to cause certain good things or certain things that are off and, and whatnot. That also got, gave me the confidence to open Mission Brewery. So in the beginning, we were small. We were 800 square feet. We outgrew that space, moved to 4,000 square feet down in Chula outgrew that space and moved to our current space in 2010 which is the historic Wonder Bread uh, factory. And if you've been there, it's a really cool building. It's one of the oldest buildings downtown. It was built in 1894. So Wonder Bread was there making bread for 100 years, 1894 to 1993. And from 93, it sat vacant for 17 years. So Mission was the second tenant in this building. And we took on, at one point, we're at 24,000 square feet. So it, there, there's some really cool heritage there's a historic grain silo that they used to fill with flour. We refurbished it and to this day are using it to fill with grain to make our beer. So they were making bread with, with grain, water, and yeast at hops. We're making beer. So we're using the factory in a very similar way. So, you know, over, oh, God, when we started in the market, there were 25 breweries in San Diego. We were one of 25. Now there's 150 breweries or so. So, 
we're one of the older breweries. And uh, with that, that kind of brings you to current. I'm still employed with the brewery after we sold it. My position is founder. So I'm just kind of that guy over in the corner. I still help. I still, you know, I, they, there's a lot that after so much time there that I, I still contribute and help. And I'm helping the new owners, uh, you know, just keep bubbling along and moving the brewery forward. All right. So the first beer, let's go, you know, when you're any, anytime you're tasting beer, it always makes sense to go lightest to darkest or least hoppy to most hoppy. Cause you go the other way that the, the bigger beers can kind of wreck your palate and make it more difficult to, to, to really taste the, the, the lighter beers. So the, the first beer, you know, and we have core beers. We have beers that have been on the market forever, Mission Blonde, Mission IPA, Shipwrecked and whatnot. And I, I chose not to bring those today. I figured let's bring something different. You know, this year the brewery is going to make 10 uh, seasonal and one-off beers to put into the market on a temporary basis. And I brought one of those today, actually two of them, both of them are, are were were short-term beers to be on the market for a couple of months. The first one is Passion Fruit Goza. So Goza is a German beer that is uh, fermented and it's uh, sour with coriander and salt. So it's a very unique style that was popular in Germany. And in a town that had up to 70 breweries that were just making Goza. And then uh, I think after World War II, that it kind of faded away, but um, a lot of people aren't familiar with it. It's, you know, one of my favorite styles. When you get a Goza that's done right, it's salt and sour and balanced just right. It's, there's something really decadent about it. So this one is, is our twist on it. Being craft brewers, we put passion fruit in it and mango um, and coriander, which is the standard. You guys want to grab your beer, give it a taste. It's the colors of the can even kind of make it seem like it's a good beer for the summertime or the start of the summer because it just seems like it'd be refreshing. You bet. And that, that's what I get a lot on this beer is that it's very refreshing. Mm. Yep. Same. So when you taste a sour beer, beer, most styles are a balance between the sweetness of the malt and the bitterness of, of the hop. But when you get a sour, it's a balance between the sweetness of the malt and sourness. And there's a little bitterness underneath it just to hold things up. The bitter, as you see, this doesn't come through. This isn't like a pale ale or an IPA. It's not biting your tongue. You get sweet and sour and you get fruit and whatnot. It's a unique, unique beer. We love it. We've got a lot of good response, you know, back on it. And uh, I'd say you probably will see this out again next year. That's great. What do you think? Eric, what are your thoughts? That's very refreshing. I just had a sip. I was like, wow, that's, that's pleasant. You know, there's, I think there's a, some extra beer in there for you, to have, for your wife to try it too. I'll bet you. I have to say, I don't drink a lot of sours or things on that side, but this is a, it's on a hot day. This would be really good, like sitting out on a nice patio, right? Well, well said. I, I agree completely. In San Diego, there's a lot of days like that. So we get, we got plenty of opportunities. Because I'm more, I'm more of a stout and porter drinker, like dark beer drinker. Okay. And, but you know, I'll, I'll hit. Um, I mean, being up here in San Marcos, where I lived, uh, the scene is just so strong with you know IPAs and double IPAs and, and all yeah. that. Yeah, so, um, those are everywhere. The, you don't see as many porters. I, you stout, there's stouts everywhere too, but like Belching Beaver's got some good stouts. Yeah, for uh, example, but you don't see many porters around. 
So, but it's good to know that there's still, they still have a few fans, the few holdouts like yourself that are out there. (laughs) They're still willing to find them. I've always liked, like, especially if you go and say, like, say Ballast Point, get like a a sextant on on Nitro. That's like my favorite, just really smooth stout. Yeah. That's definitely my, that's my go to type of thing, right? But, you know, on a really hot day, I would, I would drink something like this Goza or, yeah, like a like a sculpin. I love a sculpin from Ballast Point on a on a. That's kind of one of the classic San Diego beers. I feel like. Totally, yeah. It's uh, just such a good beer, and it's well known outside of here. You know, you go other places, people people know sculpin when when it's on tap. It's a good. It's a good name. It's like a memorable word. Obviously, it's the name of a fish, but like it's it's good from a marketing standpoint. I think it, the way that they had their branding set up for a while, where they had everything was based on different types of fish, was was great. All okay, right. all right. So that is the German Goza. It's spelled G O S E. Have have either of you ever had a Goza? You know, I think I have. I've had. Um, I think Alesmith makes one that's kind of a little bit similar, but that I, other than that, this is one of the first. I think for sure. And this one's this one's. I like this one better. Thank you. Yeah, I like, yeah, no, it's yeah, great. I think the I passion like the fruit, you get the nice fruit in there. It's 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 a nice mix, nice blend. Yeah, I like the balance on this. Like that's like some sours are just too tart for me, too sour. You know, yep. like I could drink, I could drink this would be no problems. Really smooth. Yeah, well said. And that that's critical with beer is is having just the right balance and finding that sweet spot that makes it really enjoyable. Now you mentioned uh, Ale Smith. Peter Zion, the founder of Ale Smith, is a friend of mine, good friend. When when I went through the beer judge certification program, he was the instructor. He, Peter is a grandmaster beer judge. I think they should change that title. I'm just saying. I don't know, but it doesn't grandmaster matter. Has it, a weird name, weird ring to it, I guess. <laughs> you know, but but it, it, it it's a really uh, high title. He's the only one I know who, who's reached that level. And and he's a genuinely good human being. So, all right. You guys ready to move on? To What's the, the second one we've got here? This one's got... All right. we, we talked about the challenge in getting it open. It's like an exp- it's an experience, I feel like, to open this one. And yeah, um, it's a little ominous with the big pirate ship on it. So, so <laughs> the reason I chose this beer was last year, the biggest, the biggest beer competition in the United States is called the Great American Beer fest and it's where we all compete all the all the commercial breweries compete with one another all the major names are there anheuser-busch sierra nevada boston beer all the local big ones that you know stone we were all competing and in 2021 the last competition mission took gold in the imperial stout category some people call it a russian imperial stout i chose to just call it an imperial stout today for recent reasons uh, but it, it is a, it's a style of beer. So we won, we took first, they, they voted our, our Imperial Stout number one in the United States against every commercial brewery that competed. So for us, it's a real badge of honor, you know, we, we really, uh, we're very proud of it. And so I was going to bring just the dark seas for you guys to, to, to try. And Eric, I know you're a dark beer fan. So I had to bring a dark beer and, Appreciate and we ran out. We saw, I think we sold out yes. because it was because we won the medal. I went down to pick up. So this is a seasonal. It's exact same beer, but with peanut butter added. So hang on, guys. Let me get my bottle open. I'm still peeling uh, <laughs> cap here too. To say I, I'm with Dan. Like this was an adventure to open this thing. I'm yeah. I'm impressed. I mean, it should come with a hazard warning. I mean, you could hurt yourself. It's good. No, I, I, I am generally not much of an outdoorsman, but I'd like to pretend that I am. 
And so be, <laughs> being able to use a sharp knife only comes up so many times <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a month or in a year for me. So this is my one time of the year where my fancy sharp knife got to make an appearance. So I appreciate it. I think it's the first time in 2022 where I've used my Apple Watch and like started a workout just to track <laughs> my calories while I opened it. That's great. Nice. The wax crown, the wax dipping puts a little extra touch on it. And how did they do uh, that just for just to make it, you know, novel? Or is there any reason that you um, the aesthetics of the bottle, you know, to let you know yeah, that it, just it's, it's something special? You know, you don't do that just okay. for every beer because each bottle has to be hand dipped. Someone is, you know, dipping the bottle into, you know, a crock pot like device with, with melted wax. Uh, and you guys right. distribute a lot. Are you doing this? or uh, how does that work? Yes, With our the... distributor is Wine Warehouse, and they distribute our beer throughout the state of California. So I'll mm. speak briefly on the beer and comment and then move on. So the, the Russian Imperial style, if, if, you, if you taste it, you know, the beer has flavors and aromas of chocolate, of coffee, of roastiness, right? And in this one, it's also got a layer of peanut butter on it just for, for the, the seasonal, uh, uh, you know, beer that we put out. But mm, again, it's a very big beer at 9.8% alcohol, but it doesn't taste like 9.8. Yeah. I feel like to your point earlier, Eric, this is very balanced. You know, it's got all these big roasty chocolate, coffee, and then peanut butter mm -hmm. flavors that bring a, a, you know, a big character to the beer. And again, we put in just enough hops into the beer to, to balance it so that it's not too sweet. Yeah, at 9.8, this is, uh, this is dangerous, man. You could, <laughs> this is tastes really good and it's high. You calm down a wild animal. With it. Yeah. You could tranquilize <laughs> a bear with this. All right. So I'll, I'll good. It's, you it's a, sneaky. I think it's more sneaky though. The so peanut butter, not, the peanut butter kind of hides the alcohol, I think pretty well. Mm. Yeah, I agree. You don't, I mean, it does, you know, sometimes when you, you get one of those fancy, say you go to stone and you're on the patio and you get a fancy Russian imperial stout and it comes in the little tiny guy and you're like, okay, okay, we got to be careful. <laughs> and you take a sip and you know, you can feel the alcohol, like the, the yep. content is just like, boom, in the face. Like this one yep. for being 10%, it, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty light. You don't notice it. I agree with Dan. It just, it kind of just, it's exactly. not hot like some beers. Some beers, if it's mm -hmm. if they're not balanced properly or or um, yeah. or made properly, you can get some heat from the alcohol, which is something people don't want. It's just not pleasant. Yep. Now, okay, so this beer does not have any chocolate or coffee in it. So the way that we get those flavors is from the maltsters. So we use barley, two-row barley. And the base barley, there's a scale called Lovabond. Mm. And the lowest... Love a bond on barley. It's like two. So it's like a straw color. When you think of grain and whatnot, that's the base barley that we use in, in you know, most of our beers, all of them. As the maltsters roast it to higher levels, how do I explain this? So let's say we take it to a 10 or a 20 love a bond. The grain has a little bit darker appearance. It's roasted a little bit lo longer. And love a bond can go all the way up over 500. So as you go up that scale, let's say 20... 30, maybe you start to get toffee-like flavors or caramel flavors. And then you get up to 80 and 100, and maybe you start to pick up a little coffee and, and chocolate. When you get to 500, it's just pure roastiness, right? So the way that we create the beer 
to have it taste like chocolate and coffee and, and have that roasty deliciousness is by just the right blend of different malts, different roasted to different degrees. And so they're, 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 they're separate in the brewery. They're specialty malts that we add in different proportions to come up with the, this end product. So, uh, appreciate the, 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 the comments. Glad you guys like it. Oh, and the peanut butter. We didn't get that from the malt at all. That we put peanut butter in. We put a product in it's peanut butter. That makes sense. I like it. That's good. All right. It's pretty smooth. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So, so Dan, you know, I've, I think I told you before, I've, we've done a few of these podcast episodes where we've had people from the brewery come on and do what you just did. Tell us about the brewery. Tell us about the beers. And, and usually it's, it's, you know, kind of a joint decision as to which brewery we're going to have, where Eric and I might talk for a few minutes and say, Hey, let's get someone from this brewery or let's get someone from that brewery. But in this case, there's a, there's more of a backstory to how Eric, why Eric decided to have you and, and mission come on. You, you guys didn't just meet 10 minutes ago. You guys have some history together. I would love to hear the story because that's definitely a fun background and, and something that's important. Sure. Well, we did, we have had some fun, but it wasn't all, all fun. In November of 2016, I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. I had 22 tumors in my body. And that was the beginning of, of the connection uh, to the trail that led to Eric. So they didn't find my cancer early enough. Uh, the colonoscopy age was 50 back then in, 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 in 2016, and I was 47 at diagnosis. So the cancer that started in my colon had broken through the wall, spread through lymph nodes to my liver. I had a tumor on my liver, and then I had, I had tumors in 20 lymph nodes from my leg all the way up to my neck. On the, on the uh, PET scan, I was lit up like a Christmas tree. It was spooky. You know, the, the, the original doctors gave me two years to live, and, and that's tough news to, to get. You know, when, when you, when that news lands on you, you go from the world of a thousand problems that we live in to the world, to the world of one problem. And for me, you know, I had a business and kids, a family that, that depended on me. And my, my MO was I was going to do everything in my ability to survive, period. You know, some people aren't that way. They think, you know, they've had a good life. They've had love and they're just going to kind of go with the flow. Not me. I was going to look under every rock to try and, and survive. And I did. I mean, I'm here today. November was my five year anniversary. I'm cancer free. You know, I still, I still am, take treatment every other week. But, um, so just to kind of fast forward to how I met Eric, you know, the, the first thing that had to happen was to have surgery. So I had, uh, a part of my colon removed, the, the main alien. They took that out and plumbed me back together. And then upon recovery, they wanted me to, to start chemotherapy. And that, that is a, a milestone in your life. When people are saying, you're getting, we're going to put chemotherapy in your body, it's, it's, it's just unbelievable when, yeah. when it happens to you. Yep. So I, we, I have friends who were connected to a homeopathic clinic in Georgia in a town called Bremen. And there was a lot of success stories coming out of that clinic. People who were going in with cancer, going in with a lot of cancer and coming out cancer free. And we had, I had friends who were, who had got treatment there successfully, who were part of it, who were going down to like the Amazon, getting plants and bringing them uh, to compounding pharmacies and putting these in, in infusions. So I decided to skip chemo and go to Georgia. I went to this clinic. So when I went in, I had 21 tumors in my body. 
I did 52 hours of infusions. I they, I was taking um, decaffeinated green tea, like 3,000 cups a month. And I, whatever program they put me on, I, I just told them, I'm like, I'll do whatever you tell me to. If, if, a dead, if I eat a dead rat and it cures my cancer, I'll do it. Well, it was actually a very pleasant experience. You know, after a few weeks, I had more energy than I'd ever had in my life. So the original diagnosis I got, I had switched from that doctor. I looked around to find other doctors and found Dr. Xavier over at Scripps. She's awesome. She, she saved my life. She said, you know, I, she said, you're in no danger. You can go and do this. And I asked her if she would scan me when I came back. Let's scan for cancer. Let's see what the, the treatment did. When I came back from Bremen, all the cancer was gone. She said, I can't tell if there's any cancer in your body. And she said, the tumor that was on your liver is gone. She said, do you mind if I, we do an MRI? We want to zoom in and, and, and see, because this is highly unusual. I was like, you can do anything you want. I don't have any cancer. They did an MRI, zoomed in to where the tumor was, and saw that the remnants, scar tissue, evidence that it was there. And the radiologist said, the etiology of the improvement is unknown because the patient is not receiving treatment. And I looked at my doctor and I said, you and I know what the etiology is. It was the clinic that I went to. As it turns out, you know, I, I've learned a lot about cancer and I have a few, I have some nasty mutations, one of which is called BRAF. I also have BRCA2. Now, but BRAF is known to have a poor prognosis for cancer patients and be very aggressive. So two months later, recurrence. Two months later, I started to feel pain. They did another scan and it, the report came back widespread progression in my body. I went on chemotherapy. I did 18 weeks of chemotherapy. Once again, it worked. Now, during this time, you know, I, I was scouring the internet, trying to learn as much as I could, trying to find, I joined a group called Colon Town, which is great. It's a great community for patients who are trying to survive to connect. You know, the, the group always does better than the individual, right? And there's 6,000 cancer patients trying to help each other on that site. And I ran, I found a guy named Tom Marsili, who uh, was a PhD, who was a PhD cancer drug researcher about my age who had colon cancer. And I thought, this guy's going to be my new best friend. I, I need to become friends with him because who better to help me than a guy who's got the same disease as I do, who's a, who's a cancer drug researcher, and uh, maybe he can help me. So it took me a few months to connect to him through the internet and through people. I finally had someone connect us and met with, with Tom. He came down to the brewery and he was in pretty bad shape at that time with his cancer. He, he came down and had a couple tasters of beer with me and we bonded. We talked multiple times every week. So one thing that I did that I think a lot of cancer patients don't do, and I, a big part of this I give to going to Scripps and to UCSD from my previous provider, you know, when I showed up, they said, your previous provider did not do enough testing. And when you look out by and large, it's, it's not uniform. And so when I did more testing at Scripps, UCSD tests like Foundation One, Keras, Gardent, these are next level uh, tests that, that are more comprehensive than some simplistic tests that some of the hospitals offer. You know, there were, there were things that came out in my testing that pointed doctors in a direction that they thought could help, but it kind of stopped there. I, to get new medicine back then, to get, a, to get some, a new drug, you had to just fail standard of care. And standard of care is chemotherapy. So even though they had these 
tests that showed that I was PD-1, PD-L1, all this good stuff, I was I had to get on chemo. So I did chemo for 18 weeks. I lost 60 pounds. It was brutal, you know. Yep. But when when I stopped chemo, along when I along the way I had found Tom and Tom was friends with Eric Murphy. So I sent Tom these tests that I just mentioned, Foundation One, Karis at the time, Garden. Since then, I've had Tempest. And Tom met with Eric. And, you know, Eric, maybe this is a, a good time for, for you to, to jump in because I didn't know that Tom was meeting with Eric. And just Tom was my friend and I sent him all my genetic reports to ask for help. You know, I think one thing I chose this glass, right? Yeah. I, uh, this, is, this is related. Can you see this glass that the yep. viewers in? Yeah, it says to life. It's hard to read, but it says to life on it. Dan knows exactly what this is, but it has a Mission Brewery stamp. Yep. And uh, Tom Marcelio was a great friend of mine. Dan saw the eulogy I had to give for him. It was one of the hardest things I had to do. And he was someone who worked with me at Novartis. He was a co-inventor of Zycadia. And so just, just some great, you know, uh, work. Um, probably be working with me at my biotechs, honestly, and side by side if he was still around. Okay. But, you know, Dan was very close with with Tom and we did a very big tribute to um, to him at, at Mission Brewery, right, down by Petco. And these glasses were made by really Dan and others, Trevor Barlow, Erica Hanson-Brown from Colentown. And it was a big deal. I have like 10 of them. I still use them all the time. It's a great reminder. But the reason it all connects is Tom and I were scientific colleagues, but Tom knew I was a, always a patient advocate. Of, it's just something... I'll never take a dime for it, but I, I think it's from a cancer biology training. It's something that we should do to give back, especially when folks are fighting battles, especially people like Dan. I take a big interest in folks that have children, have a lot of life left. Just, uh, you know, Dan had a, had a different spirit from what Tom had told me. So we looked into, um, you know, the genomics of the disease and BRAF mutations and BRCA2 and these different things that are all interesting for CRC, but it's typically a cold tumor. You know, you, you would, one thing that Tom was really big in, and he became a monster um, patient advocate on the cover of Newsweek, Katie Couric interviews. I mean, Tom became a, a mega patient advocate, way larger. It's a huge goal to aim for for myself. Something I'll chase the rest of my career was his example. But he brought, you know, this package to me at our favorite place called Jupengo. And we would meet there and I would always make sure Dan, not Dan, but Tom was having his miso soup and a really good meal, very healthy green tea. We'd both drink. We liked the um, Jamaica green tea there. And we'd review patients anonymously. Dan was one of them. And I looked at the, the path on it and I went, this thing is loaded with T cells, with tills. This is not CRC. And he's like, I guarantee it is. So we looked at the molecular path of it. I was like, this this guy gets immunotherapy, this, this tumor is going to dissolve. You know, it's, you take the brakes off these T cells loaded in here, it's going to go crazy. And Tom was already ahead of me. Tom was a smart guy. He was, he was very solid at patient advocacy. But I, you know, this is the dream that you hope for for these patients where we try to condition tumors to have, you know, heat or immune response ready to go. And things like Keytruda will take that break off and, and really, you know, wreak havoc and that's important for a guy like Dan, who's just loaded with tumor burden through multiple organs and things, right? And lo and behold, I was from the Morse UCSD Cancer Center. I um, 
you know, know Ezra Cohen, I know Sandy Patel and other people there very well, um, top to bottom. Dave Cherish was a member there who was one of my mentors in postdoc and beyond. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was like, where can we find a trial to get him on immediately for immunotherapy? And I mean, I, I looked at Dan's patient report because they were always redacted because of HIPAA rules. And it looked bad. You know, I was like, you know, we could try, but it's, I said, Tom, it's not looking great. You know, I think the molecular pathology, we could do some, you know, beacon trial. We could do this. There were, there were options. But I said, it was just mainly turning into a game of extension of life and managing really just side effects and things, you know, not chemo type of deal, which you find yourself in as a patient advocate a lot, trying to guide people to trials. But you know, luckily, I'll let Dan continue. You know, Tom, Tom encouraged him to do this. And uh, you know, I think it's an amazing story, but it's really bonded Dan and I. That's why I wanted him to come on the podcast because there's a, there's a link to all this and the companies that I found. Everything I've been chasing since I was 16, you know, and my wife's my high school sweetheart, she'll tell you I was on a mission about cancer for personal reasons all the way back when in high school. And every one of these things adds up, Dan's story, other people's story, getting the news out on genomic testing, but also these, these connections to the local places, right? Um, Tom was working with folks at TSRI for genomics on his tumors, a lot of local support at Salk, really cool professor over there that I won't name, but was helping him out for full sequencing. And, you know, when you wrap all these things together, it's the biotech community here is very strong. The academic community is top-notch. I mean, it's just such a beautiful cluster with great weather and great beer, as we just discussed. But this was one of those stories where when you hear Dan finish it, it's, uh, it's pretty inspiring. It motivated me. So Tom reaches out to me after this lunch, and he goes, Hey, Dan, I think you've got something interesting going on with your cancer. Maybe you should go check back in at the Moore's Cancer Center. I looked at that and I thought, don't have to ask me twice. I'm not shy. I called and I had met with Dr. Sandeep Patel. He was one of the, the two second opinions that I got, second, third opinion. You know, when I met him, I asked him, I said, Dr. Patel, have, have you ever cured someone like me? You know, and he looked at me and this is in 16, 17, early 17. He said, yes, I have. And I was like, whoa, you know, the, my first doctor was like, I can get you two years. That's it. Here's a guy who, who's, who's actually done it. And, and I can't tell you how much that means. Hope is, is a very, very valuable thing. Well, this was a year later when these guys met and, and Tom told me to, to go check back in. So I scheduled an appointment. I showed up and I said, Dr. Patel, you remember me? And he goes, of course I do. And I said, hey, I thought I'd come in. I wanted to see if you have any any new medicine that you think might help me or anything that's coming down the pipeline that might help me, you know, uh, with my cancer. He goes, well, your timing is incredible. He said, we have a phase one clinical trial with these two new drugs. And I think you're a perfect fit. I think you should do it. And he said, you know, you 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 had natural homeopathic treatment that was effective. You had chemotherapy that was effective, but I've but BRAF is so strong, it just keeps coming and charging at me. He said, maybe it's time for you to try something new. And so the phase one clinical trial had two drugs on it, Dervalumab, which is like a cousin to Keytruda. Eric can speak more to that. It's kind of a similar mechanism. 
And the other one was at that time was called IPH2201. It didn't even have a name. It's experimental. And now they call it monolizumab. So it was two drugs. So I gave it a considerable thought. I asked Tom what he thought. I sent the information to Tom and he said, go. Dr. Xavier at Scripps, go. Every, everyone around me was saying, go. And so I started the trial. You know, with clinical trials, they, they normally want to see some kind of response at about six weeks. And, you know, they want to see a rash or some kind of immune response in your system. It took me about six hours after the infusion. I felt, I felt the inflammation throughout my torso. And the doctors were giving me thumbs up. They're like, there's a response. This is good. Because when I take the immunotherapy now, it's like drinking a glass of water. I don't feel a thing. You know, you got to go in, get an infusion, walk out. It's like nothing. So part of a clinical trial is they give you a CT scan, CAT scan every eight weeks. So at eight weeks, my cancer was 60% reduced. And then the next eight weeks, actually, Eric was there. It was 100% gone. The cancer was gone at two months. And at four months, gone, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, gone. And I have to go in every two weeks. You know, I go to the cancer center and I get my infusion, but it's a small price to pay to, you know, to not have tumors grow. So I've, after two years of being on the trial, they said their data showed that if I went off the trial, there was a 90% chance or so that the cancer would never come back. Well, I went off the trial, eight months later, had my fourth recurrence of the cancer. Went back on the trial drugs and same thing happened. Medicine went away and that was about 18 months ago. So, I mean, there, this was a really high level story. There was a lot of bumps and ups and downs throughout the way. And, and, you know, I mean, I, when, when something bad would happen, a lot of cancer patients put all their eggs in one basket and just listen to one doctor. I'm not that way. When something bad happened, I call Eric. I went up to LA and met with Dr. Lenz, who's a pretty renowned colon cancer doctor. I went back to Xavier, talked to her and, and another doctor over there. And, and it's interesting when you do that, in that process, different people say different things and point out different things. And, and collectively, I think it, it adds to your survival. You know, so I, I want to stop and go back because when, when we had the, the meeting to review my two-month scan, I asked Eric if he would come with me. And because, you know, I, you know, my wife and I were going in, a lot of the medical stuff is pretty, you know, the jargon can be, you know, confusing and whatnot. And I just wanted him as, as an advocate. And he did. Eric, maybe you want to speak to that because you were there when we got the news. I, it's, it's one of those moments that, um, I, you know, I think that's the first time I met your wife, Sarah. We were in Sandeep's office, right? And yep. I mean, I couldn't believe it because I told you when we first, it was all kind of, I was, I'm usually, they call the, the swim coach, you know, I coach the long, I try to coach for long swimmers on swimmer plots and we can elaborate on that later. Dan's a long swimmer in a clinical trial, which means he's, he's living and still swimming in his swim lane on a bar on a chart. And man, do you live for those moments as a researcher, as somebody who just cares in the biotech community, pharma? And that's the thing I love about our community. When you, you know, I think my LinkedIn presence, I try to keep really positive, but the people that post on my wall, it's just, I read it and it's not only good information, but really positive. And folks are driven for a purpose for patients. 
So when you get those moments where you see a Dan Spellis go in with a BRAF MSSCRC, which shouldn't respond to immunotherapy, no doctor would try it usually. And it's a, it's a scan that's clean, like no, no evidence of disease. We call them NEDs um, in Colentown and other, other foundations I'm in. I mean, it was probably one of the most emotional moments I've seen in my life between Dan and Sarah, I think I slipped out. I was just like, dude, I'm gonna let him have this because this just doesn't happen very often. But, you know, that charged me up again to build more companies, do more things. I want to make more safe drugs, safe therapies that, you know, like Dan said, you got to check in time to time. But man, that's a lot better price to pay than the alternative, right? And, you know, he's seen his kids graduate. When he crossed 50, I was pretty excited. You know, he usually sends me these things. And I have about like 50 people like Dan now over the thousand plus that I've advocated for. And I'm very close to all of them. They send me just funny stuff there. Once you've gone through cancer and you've stood up to it and you've won like Dan, Dan was definitely six feet underground when I met him. Like anybody else, you show me that profile. I'm usually managing expectations that you may get six months. You know, Let's see if we can make that a year is typically the approach. And to watch that thing come in, even like Sandeep is just a doctor, um, a Dr. Patel and, and Ezra, Dr. Cohen, he's on the SAB Kyanata company I founded too. They just have these wonderful bedside manners and personas, but just his enthusiasm, the whole thing, I was like, okay, this, we just have to create more of this. This is the way it's supposed to be. So, so Eric, so a lot of time, I spent a lot of time talking to entrepreneurs and a lot of people that have started companies and you know, it's always really interesting to hear about what motivates people. A lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs are motivated. Maybe they want to support their family. Maybe they've got kids. Maybe they, you know, want to make a lot of money and, and buy a boat or buy a nicer house. But it really sounds like for you, you know, maybe those things would be nice too. But the, the primary motivation is genuinely to help people. Yeah, that's hands down. I mean, that's the world we live in. I think leaders now that want to be entrepreneurs are going to have to face social consciousness, you know, they're gonna, there's choices being made now about things happening in our world. It's been a rough couple of years. Let's put it that way. Yeah. You're going to have to up your game, but you better have a darn purpose behind it. Not just a shareholder base you have to attend to. That's important because if you succeed with your goals and everything and build a very strong business plan, deliver, have a very motivated team, that's all important. But if you can unite people around a purpose, give them a little autonomy, the teams that come to work with me, they, they know we're going to push very hard and they know the personal reasons that I have for doing that. And it's an inferno. It grows with each Dan Sellis or each loss. You know, both, there's both sides of that balance, right? And you can actually turn losses into a lot of fuel, but you can turn wins into more fuel. Yeah, well said. So that that was, I mean, that was a really great start because we were able to hear your guys' connection. And then we also kind of heard, Eric, you kind of touched on some of the some of your back background and kind of how you got to where you are now. You mentioned some of your experience with other companies. It sounds like you've been involved with a few kind of early stage biotech companies and, and you've got yeah. you know one that, that recently kind of went public with some fundraising news and you're you're now you know kind of off and running with with the newest company. We'd love to hear you tell the story of how that came together and, and what the focus is. So that interestingly, it all it all connects at multiple levels. Still with Dan here, one of the guys that 
helped me with a few things with related to Dan's case and others in Colentown and CRC does a lot of the patient empowerment pieces in Boston is Ryan Corcoran. And he's a, he's a, he's a fantastic clinical researcher, but treats patients in, in GI cancers and, and in particular colorectal cancer. He's done a lot of work on BRAF and EGFR. And uh, he was on the SAB of the previous company I founded called Kinate. And we decided, hey, let's go a whole nother level up here and, and try to now go after what's called alteration specificity. And what that means is targeting, say, Dan's BRAF mutation, but not hitting the BRAF normal protein in all of his body. So then the cancer patient just doesn't feel the side effects, right? It's just only hitting the cancer cell driver, that, that, that oncogenic driver. But it leaves the normal protein that's not messed up per se or mutated or altered alone. So your side effects are going to be almost nil is, is the plan. And there's been so many biotechs building toward this in the KRAS zone that's hot. And, you know, these places like, you know, Amgen and Marathi, those I love the guys over at Marathi, Jamie and, and that crew. You know, they, everybody's just been pushing the field up and now we're capitalizing that. And Ryan's been studying KRAS resistance, you know, these same kind of inhibitors. So we decided let's go after something alteration specific, hence the name Alterum. So when you hear things like genome, you know, that's like the, the whole, all your genes, right? The ohm genome. This is like the alteration ohm. Is, that's what it's, it's um, named after. And we have a couple of programs where we're like, okay, if we can succeed in doing this, gosh, the, we'd solve for a couple of patient segments that have really no options but chemo right now, but also wow, it'd be nice to treat them and then be able to bring some immunotherapy like Dan got on top and not affect it because you're only hitting the, the uh, altered protein in the cancer cell and not the immune system at the same time. So this has been a staircase for 20 plus years of from academia and working at Affy Matrix all the way back in the mid 90s when I was really green and you know gene chips and all this was fascinating at the time all the way to now. And I, I think there's... Uh, very exciting time to be in cancer research and cancer, you know, just medicines in general across the board. I think you're going to see this, this heyday coming where all this biotech money, especially in San Diego, has seeded a bunch of great companies that are now hopefully going to synergize and lots of things like what Alterum's working on are going to pop up. And that's pretty exciting to be a part of. That's, that's great. So, and you mentioned the the money coming in. You guys just had a nice, you know, the launch that came with some a nice funding round. Yeah, got you guys off to a good start. What what mm -hmm. was the fun? What was the fundraising process like? You know, it seems like it's been you've seen a lot of lot of money coming into San Diego. Maybe mm -hmm. more in sub certain sectors of the biotech world than others. Uh, but we'd love to get your take on what that process was like and and what you think the funding landscape looks like. Great. Yeah, that's, let me unpack that question a lot because things have changed quite a bit, as you know, in the biotech yeah, sector. Yep. Just was on some calls with an investor earlier today, and not in the syndicate, but just a friend. And so let's unpack this. And it's, it's a good discussion. You know, this process for me, I, you know, I, I think I go back to the previous company, well, Fount Therapeutics, which was a, was a parent LLC to multiple C Corps, one of which was Kinate Biopharma, that then launched and you know, Steve Caldor and I founded that company and we were very, very excited about that. It was, again, oncogenic, you know, targeted therapies and really going after a bunch of targets that need certain mechanisms taken care of. And, you know, at the time, 
this would have been, even I were working on this, you know, we were incubating for a while because the multi-company structure stuff's complicated, but it was like 2017, we were really getting serious about this. And, you know, we pitched this to Foresight and um, Steve had a great connection with Jim Tannenbaum and, uh, you know, Brett Zabar and Michael Rome, a huge champion of ours too at, at Foresight. And they kind of pounced on this right before JPM at the end in 2018, we got that funded. And that was a process, you know, we took a long time and it was back and forth. It took a while and not by anybody's means, just normal kind of timelines, right? So that, that company was successful and through all these uh, series ABC and, you know, a nice IPO in 2020. And, you know, I decided that that pipeline was grown. It was clinical stage. There's even trials running at Morse Cancer Center with folks that were in the lab with me on the same program. There's a lot of story there behind this. Um, but, you know, I, I said, oh, they're pretty stacked. They have a great pipeline that's undisclosed. They have a great clinical pipeline. They have a strong team. They're moving into one Paseo and the Presidio they're already in in, in SF. So I, you know, took off and basically I'm still in the SAB, but and, and advise, but I wanted to do this next kind of level up thing. It's it's obviously harder, but Ryan Corcoran, who was on that SAB with, shout out to Ezra Cohen and Andy Lowy, who've been with me a long time from the Morse Cancer Center, great friends, both of them and colleagues. And I, I look at this and it was just, you know, it, you could just feel that the IPOs were overvalued in the biotech market. Like something was going to burst, right? And yeah. I left Kainate, uh, you know, we announced it very slowly and made sure everybody was comfortable being a founder. And, you know, that, that departure went great. The team was built out and really executing well. It was very clinical. And, you know, because we were worried about the biotech stock, it's been so volatile, right? That wasn't a problem. I think the team took the baton, did very well, is still going, just very eager for all the clinical data to read out and share with people. And the, uh, you know, the reason I say all that is, you know, I jumped in, I think it was December 3rd. So my, wife birth, my wife's birthday is December 3rd. What you see is I, I have all these dates that I program stuff around. So the IPO was 2020, December 3rd, which was my wife's birthday. People figured that out later. And then I left a year later of IP, you know, post-IPO service as a you know, Section 16 officer on my wife's birthday. Founded Alterome. Pretty much the next week, you know, I I told investors, everybody knew I was going to do the next thing because I'm an entrepreneur. And it's, it happens a lot, as you know. And um, bless his heart, Carl Gordon from Orbimed's a great friend, you know, big backer at Kainate and other things that we do. Love Steve as well. And he was just all in on this from the get go. Just, just a mega influence in the targeted therapy world, you know, from a VC standpoint, he's a big player at Orbimed in Manhattan. And, you know, quickly just Next Tech came in next. I think I, Ryan and I presented them on the Monday morning after I had left Kainé. And, you know, a lot of it, I think, was just betting on what Ryan and I were saying and what we were going to do in the programs. But I think these folks had been in our Kainé rounds too and, you know, knew what they were getting into. So I, you know, made a goal of closing Series A and, under 28 days with holidays, right? And I, I, people laughed at me. They're like, no way, you're not going to get through all the legal process, the back and forth. Wilson, uh, Sincini, Goodrich, Rizzotti always represents my companies in the last 10 years. And you know, they 
they just did a great job. I, I, I love Lance Brady and, and Miranda Biven here locally is just um, excellent. They've worked with us at Fountain, Kinate, and Alterum. And uh, man, did that go fast because a couple more came in, uh, Vita Ventures. I love Arjun Goyal and that company. And really, again, just solid MD background. Boxer here locally, I have to give a, you know, some airtime to Aaron Davis and, and Dominic and Sid there. The, the great local place, you know, for VC funds in One Paseo. Very smart group. Did a lot of work with the methyl gene Marathi things. A lot of, they have a lot of San Diego presence. So got them in and really just pulled it together fast and was able to announce to the group that we closed Series A December 31st. We really pumped up the team and we got started January third or whatever it was. So it was fast this time, but yeah. I, knew, I knew there was a reason like there, we had to go in case there was this scenario where it was going to get tough to get funding. You know, I was just thinking, man, this could get really hard in about six months. It turns out it was about a month later, month and a half later, post JPM. Things got tricky, as you know, in your sector. And folks are now, you know, a lot of VCs are holding money for their portfolio companies or backing certain players or waiting for another company they want to get into. It's getting very tough to launch right now. Um, yeah, it's, it seems like the, the take is that companies that have raised money like in the last six months to 12 months, they feel pretty fortunate, especially if oh, they yeah. raised if they raised enough to where they're not going to need to raise, you know, in the next you know, 12 to 18 months, they feel like they're kind of set for a while. Sure. They feel like they feel like they kind of got lucky in a way. Um, to your point, mm-hmm. I think if you're having to raise money now, it's it's a lot trickier than it was recently. Yeah, the valuations just ch- changed overnight. Everything just started moving. It, it, it wasn't, it was just like a bang, like a cliff, right? It was fast. And, yep. um, and that cliff kept going down. It was not like a boom and stopped. It, it went down for a while. And, you know, I think it, you know, Folks that are out there in the public world, a lot of tons of IPOs and SPACs went off and stuff, as you know, those folks, you just got to put your head down and deliver the results, right? I mean, there's just don't look out the window. But I think right now, my worry is, you know, I'm trying to work with some projects to launch more companies, get more ideas out of universities or assets out there that are stalled or something somewhere and get younger folks an opportunity to to get their ideas out. You know, I didn't didn't really get that mentorship or that push either. I kind of just had that drive and but it's a very hard road. And Dan had the same experience in mission. You know, he had to go turn a homebrew into a kind of company and learn distribution, all this stuff. But you know, you can be done. It's just a lot of hard work. And but people need that guidance. They need that opportunity. Because let's face it, if you're a great researcher, I mean, just just world class, and you you don't know how to build a cap table, you don't know how to go in and you don't know what DNO insurance is or this or that or, I mean, all of it's just foreign when you start. And I think that the more I see these, you know, there's a lot of VCs starting these kind of incubator style things. Those are good. And I've talked to a lot of folks that have been successful out of that in Boston and certain VCs and other places. And we're all now trying to come together and find ways to give back to the, the next generation of, of leaders to be like, okay, come up here. Let us help you figure these things out because why reinvent the wheel? Let us just share what we know and take or leave the best of it. And I think San Diego needs some of that too, to be honest. You need these clusters that 
not necessarily a VC that's just sitting there owning everything, but these leaders giving back and, and really pulling people up the chain, educating them. Because you, you just can't take classes on this stuff. You're not educated in it. You basically have to go get forged in it and learn all your connections in the outside world, learn about finance and just get way outside of your comfort zone. It's very stressful. That's why I'm mostly gray now. I'm wearing a top hat. But <laughs> you know, my goal is to to help people get through that and if the end goal is to move the needle for patients like Dan, then heck, if Ryan and I put out a drug in Alterome that's very effective and somebody comes along and makes it better, that's still a win for us. We, we put a notch in, we made a, a critical discovery that then someone elaborated and made better. I'm totally fine with that. That's the way the game works. It's been working that way for a while with a lot of my friends competing against me and now we're all very collegial about it, but we all just try to pull therapies up the line to make the best patient out. And if you go into it with that kind of synergy, you know, my work, my brother works at Moderna. He worked on the COVID vaccine. And that, that was an example of like, if you pulled everything together, all the pharma, all the biotech, you were a united force on a big problem. And cancer is a big problem. It's not going anywhere. Imagine what we could do with all the data sets and all the know-how and folks like I'm talking about saying, hey, why don't we give back? Why don't we do this? Take a very small position and help these folks get their ideas up the chain and get funded because it's going to get very hard right now. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, and Dan, you can maybe speak to this too, but I, what you're, what you're describing, most industries, there's, there's no such thing as, as kind of helping your competitors, if you want to call it that. So what you're describing is such a great concept. And I think that, you know, more and more companies and people are, are maybe acknowledging a need for it. I mean, Dan, in your experience, did, did brew, I mean, there's some collaboration in, with breweries, I guess you see from time to time, but is there, did, when you were, well, you know, when Mission was coming up and, and was the brewery scene was growing, did it feel the same way where the, you had, you know, breweries kind of supporting each other and going out of your way to, to help each other or, or was it, was it more competitive? <clears throat> it, it was the former and highly unusual. I mean, the the camaraderie was like something I've, I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. You know, you get a, a group of people who are contractors together and they, they're probably carrying knives and guns for each other, right? But as brewers, it was such a David and Goliath fight. We were such an insignificant amount of volume compared to Bud, Miller, Coors, Imports, et cetera, that if, if a competitor called and needed help, we'd give them anything they needed. You know, I, I remember a day my brewers were brewing and they screwed up. And this is probably, oh my God, seven, eight years ago. They called me. They said, Dan, we ran out of Centennial hops. I said, okay. And they said, but no, we're brewing. We, we need it now. And so I said, well, make some phone calls. And I called Yiga, who uh, was a brewer down in, in OB Pizza Port. He goes, yeah, I got Centennial. And I said, hey, you know, we're in a jam. Can we borrow it? He's like, come on down because we're friends. We were all genuinely friends helping each other. So my brewers went, they picked up a box of hops that probably cost 700 bucks. No paperwork. No, just not even a handshake. Here you go. And they would bring down some of our freshest beer like, hey, thanks. Here's some stuff for you. And, and then when our shipment came in a, a day or two later, they brought the box back to him. So the, that type of thing was... Absolutely the norm. And today, by and large, still the norm because there is still such an imbalance between small craft breweries and major domestic breweries. That's great. So it, 
it's nice. It's a really nice way to do business because if I help my competitor and they blow up, it doesn't matter. It's not going to impact my business whatsoever. And in fact, there's a theory that it it helps us all. It helps the whole segment to rise. That's great. So Eric, I guess kind of shifting gears back to to the company, what what's the next? And you mentioned we've talked a little bit about you know the focus and and what you guys are working on. But what what is there a specific milestone that you guys have that you're working towards at the moment, or, or what's is there another uh, a key step that you guys are trying to accomplish? Yeah, like I said, we we just fired up just a couple months ago, right? And already have quite a bit of chemistry ongoing. Um, it's a virtual company, so we do a lot of work uh, with companies in Europe and in China for the most part, and in different parts of the U.S. as well in Canada. So, you know, the reason I think that I'm, I'm describing all that is you can fire these companies up very quickly, like rapid start. So, if you get in this serial entrepreneur cycle, you can hopefully regain some of the same chemistry teams, pharmaceutical teams, biology teams in the contract research organizations, you know, your favorites, if you treat them well. And, you know, in between the fount time and my time at Novartis at GNF site here in San Diego, I worked a lot in China. I was part of Crown Bio, which was a a big oncology CRO and had sites in Europe and US and and Asia, but a lot of time in in both Taipei and Taiwan, but really in Taichung um, near Shanghai and some in Beijing, and learned a lot about the CRO world, how hard those people work, how, how incredible those people are, and incredibly efficient it can be. So, you know, a lot of the companies uh, you know, I can mention, I, I love certain places, oh, Farmeron, Wuji, you know, all the big players that people know, but as you get to know the systems and work those angles, we got a pretty rapid start right off the bat and you know, have lots of movement on a couple of key programs. Uh, Right now, you know, I typically manage quarter to quarter through something called sprints, always have, and it's become more popular now, but, you know, it's just been annual goals broken down into quarterly goals and just looking at how we're performing as a team. And we're sprinting right now towards some of our first, you know, data where we're, we're going to see, you know, if, if tumors really respond to some of our early drugs. And I... To do that in months usually takes years, right? I, I think now our cycles are getting way efficient. And to be honest, the time in Fount and Emanate, Kinate, you know, all these other companies, artists and Cancer Center. I've been in academia, I've been in CROs, I've been in biotech, I've been in large biotech, I've been pharma. And now it's just you have a team of kind of very um, focused individuals around purpose, right? And they're they're united in this task and with the right balance of CROs and expertise and certain type of team style. I mean, these, these sprint goals become real. So if you'd be talking about sprinting in six months from a zero start, there was nothing in the company, no IP, nobody hired to the kind of goals that we're, we're trying to hit in that, you know, end of June board meeting, it would be definitely, most folks would probably laugh at us, right? And I think in 20, 17, I'd probably laugh at it and go, this timeline's ridiculous. But I think now you're seeing a lot of folks move pieces faster and 
FDA is more aggressive and trying to get drugs to people that need them. I think that everything's just changing. There's more efficient processes. Now the world, I can't control, right? If there's major tariffs put on this or some major alliance, you know, breaks down with say the US, right? You know, those are the things that you have to worry about and have fallback plans and all of that. But I feel like we keep setting up labs, tearing them down, setting up labs, tearing them down. And then Kinate was the first virtual company that I ran with Steve, his first, co- uh, Steve Calder, his first virtual company too. We were pretty nervous about it. And then it, it went really well once we optimized it. Now we took that same optimized network, put it in. And that's why uh, one of his companies, he recently was part of founding, same thing, very rapid start. So I, that's where I want to give back some of this knowledge and connections and different pieces to these newer folks. Because what if they could take their idea and insert it into that type of matrix now versus letting them struggle for 15 years and try to figure all this out, right? And there's no guarantee they're going to go to China and learn all these connections and know all these people. Because let's face it, people and relationships are king in all, all aspects. Dan will tell you that. And his, his, that's what he's a master of. He's got great charisma. So... In my field, it, like you have to make those connections. It can take you a lifetime to get there. Yep. Well, well said. So I, I generally would wrap up this type of a conversation by asking you for your take on the San Diego uh, biotech mm-hmm. landscape, but we've already we've already covered that. So a question for both you guys. You know, if you could, if you, what advice, I guess, do you think you could give to your younger self mm-hmm. that would have made a you know a big impact maybe on on your career? So if you could go back and talk to yourself, your 20-year-old self, 20. is there what, what advice would you give a 20-year-old Eric or a 20-year-old Dan? Become a professional surfer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what a life, man. You're tan, fit, you're surfing. You're spending your I mean, life in the ocean. I love that. Sounds like a great office space to me. I, right? Uh, yep. You know, if I could go back, I can, I can answer that. You know, I, my, I have a degree in mathematics. But if I knew the path that I was going down, I would have got an MBA just because I think that would have served me to just make different choices along the way. You know, if you're going to go for it, open, run a business, I, I just think an MBA would have served me. I, and maybe I would have changed my, my degree to business too. Yep. That's a good answer. Eric, what about you? I think I have a couple angles to this answer, if you bear with me. But, sure. Uh, you know, wow, 20. Uh, so many things I'd want to tell that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, call your parents, you know. <laughs> Trust me, call your parents when you can. If you're still getting text messages or calls, consider yourself lucky. So going back to that guy, like, make sure you, make sure you do that right. You know, I think I had this idea of what hard work was. My dad was a construction worker and very hard worker, very much looked up to him. And I always thought just, you know, what, what made you productive was just hard work, just work, just, just, just work all the time. You know, people know this about me. I'm many fables and I was telling Dan, I'm, some people have soap boxes and say I'm eight feet tall or whatever, who, who knows, right? And work all the time, never sleep. And I have this reputation among my teams and externally. And, you know, I look back and it's like, you know what I would tell my 20 year old self is hard work is actually putting it all in balance, you know, managing your time off, get your exercise, sleep more, 
be ready, you know, just, just handle it differently. Don't be in such a rush. You didn't need to do your PhD so fast or at 20, you didn't need to have this at 25. You didn't need to have that at this place. And these approved drugs could have been slower. This could have been this way. And uh, even Alterome, you know, it, I think it's now I look like Nostradamus because the markets went the way they did, but to jump straight out of something that was just a very, very um, high energy demand on Kine and go public and do all that right back into building everything again. You know, my, my advice to my 20 year old self and somewhat to myself right now is, you know, balance. I try to find that balance. It's uh, things can wait. I love that answer. That's great. I think both of you guys had great answers to that. That's, that's perfect. So I think that's a great way to wrap up this, this conversation. I've really, really enjoyed talking with both of you and also hearing about the way that you guys are connected. It's been really interesting and, and kind of open. And it's been, a, I think, a really good conversation for a lot of people to listen to. So thanks to both of you guys for making time to come on the podcast. This has been great. And hopefully we can do it again sometime in the future. Yeah, it would uh, pleasure to uh, join the podcast and anytime you know, and I, I think uh, it'd be great to to do a reunion in a few years and still have uh, Dan Sellis presenting with us, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Hey, you know what? And, and thank you for including me and mission. And, you know, maybe we don't have to wait that long. Maybe we should talk about it in person over a beer nearby. Uh, Eric, when you're down in Carmel Valley. Twist twist I'd my like, arm. I'll, I'll be there. That sounds great. Okay. Yep. Thanks again, Sorry. Dan. Appreciate Thanks, it. guys. Thanks for listening to the Biotech and Breweries podcast. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app. For more information or to suggest a guest, please visit biotechandbreweries.com.